This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Our guest today, Steven Pinker, one of the world's leading cognitive scientists, has written for the New York Times, Slate, and the New Republic, and is the author of seven books, including The Language Instinct, How the Mind Works, The Blank Slate, and The Stuff of Thought, Language is a Window into Human Nature. Pinker is a Johnstone family professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. He will speak on the evolution of the mind this Saturday, December 12th, at UCI's Beckman Center as part of the National Academy of Sciences Conference. Stephen Pinker, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks very much. And how are you today? I'm fine, thanks. Now, now are you uh, in California yet, or are you... Uh, back, no, I'm back? still in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Oh, very good. Now, when you're out here, you're going to be speaking on the evolution of the mind, and I hear it's going to be about the cognitive niche, am I correct? That is right. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what the cognitive niche is, why we're here? This is a, a term that I borrowed from the uh, evolutionary anthropologist John Tooby, uh, and it refers to what is special about our species. What's the deal with Homo sapiens? Why are we so unusual among uh, animals? And the idea is that we that um, we exploited a uh, an opportunity for making a living in natural ecosystems, which is basically to outsmart other plants and animals. That. Uh, Everything that an organism eats is uh, a body part of some other plant or animal, which would just as soon keep that body part for itself. <laughs> and so, uh, the uh, you know your 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 broccoli has no more of a desire to be eaten than, than you do. And so, plants and animals evolve defenses against being eaten. Animals run away, or they develop um, uh, spines, or or hard shells, or poisons. Uh, plants uh, can't very well defend themselves with their behavior, so they resort to chemical warfare, and most plants are laced with toxins and bitter-tasting substances. Most of the plants that, that we enjoy in the supermarket have been bred for thousands of years so that uh, they taste more palatable to us, all of the, the bitter substances have been bred out of them. Now, uh, the, whenever you have a, a defense in uh, evolution, you have that, a pressure to beef up the offense. So if an animal develops a thicker shell, then its predators develop stronger jaws or stronger teeth, uh, which leads to yet further defenses, uh, still thicker shells or burrowing or spiny shells. In, in a kind of analogy of an arms race, uh, now this... Yeah, this arms race is fought out in evolutionary time with, between predators and prey. Uh, one way of looking at what's special about Homo sapiens is that we, uh, instead of waiting to evolve to outsmart other plants and animals, we do it in real time in our heads. We build up models of how the world works uh, that uh, and, and um, tools of reasoning and inference and visualization. And so we can figure out that if we set up a particular trap or a snare, if we ambush an animal, if we try various things on plants like soaking them or cooking them or leaching the toxins out of them, then we can uh, enjoy them. 
And uh, since we have an unfair advantage, we can do all this in our heads in a matter of seconds, minutes, hours, days, and the animals and plants can only evolve over generations, then uh, that gives a big advantage to uh, humans. And the idea is that a lot of the unusual features of Homo sapiens can be understood uh, in terms of the cognitive niche, that is, the ability to prosper by uh, outsmarting our food sources. And now what, what uh, aspect does language play in the cognitive niche? Is it, would you say that that's the, the primary uh, factor here? I wouldn't say it's the primary factor, because if that was the only thing that we had, we'd have nothing to talk about, (laughs) and we wouldn't be on speaking terms. (laughs) So I think language evolved as part of a triad of uh, adaptations, each of which supported the other. So language does allow us to share our know-how with other people so that we don't have to discover everything by trial and error or or waiting for some stroke of genius. But if someone else has the stroke of genius or has gone through the trial and error, then uh, their relatives and uh, allies can profit from it as, profit from it as well. Uh, but that means that we have to have had the advance in cognition that gives us stuff to talk about, that is, uh, know-how and various survival tricks. But the, and the third part of this triangle is social relationships. Namely, we've got to be on speaking terms with other people. We've got to uh, be willing to do them the favor of sharing our know-how. We've got to be willing to entertain coalitions and uh, uh, groups that work toward a common goal. Uh, and um, uh, there's a reason to think that all three of these are hyperdeveloped in Homo sapiens. We use far more and tools and far more clever tools than any other species. We are the only species that really has expressive grammatical language, and we're the uh, only species that has extensive cooperation among non-relatives. I think it's not a coincidence that we're weird in three ways, because each of those ways makes the other two increasingly valuable. Now, we're speaking with uh, Stephen Pinker. He'll be speaking at the Beckman Center here on campus at UCI this Saturday, December 12th. You know, I'd like to get a little personal here with you. Uh, how is it that you came into this field that you, uh, of uh, evolutionary psychology? Is that something that uh, did you discovered after you'd been uh, uh, studying for quite a while, or is this something that you, you kind of lodged in the back of your brain early on in your life? Well, my field is really psychology, mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, evolution is just one component uh, that any complete explanation must incorporate. Okay. To really understand something, you've got to know uh, how it develops in the child. You've got to know what the, the, the mental software is that implements it. You've got to know something about the brain, and you've got to know what it evolved for, Why? what were the selection pressures that gave it its structure. So uh, coming originally from uh, just an interest in how the mind works, for me, evolution is just one of uh, the necessary components. It's not the, the only thing that mm-hmm. uh, you need to understand something. All right. And how did you come to that? How did you, uh, you know, make the transition from uh, being a psychologist into, it, did you just latch on to the uh, discovery of evolutionary psychology, or is that something you felt yourself uh, 
uh, dragged into, you know, I mean, something that was part of you, and it, it you discovered... It discovered you as much as you discovered it. Oh, I see. Uh, well, it wasn't really a transition in that, uh, I mean, any more than any other aspect of my professional development, learning more about the brain, uh, learning more about linguistic theories. Uh, I'm pretty uh, omnivorous intellectually, and okay. I, uh, uh, it, it became clear to me, I think, just from uh, just thinking about what are the innate Learning mechanisms and drives and emotions that, uh, that that make learning possible. That it raises the question of uh, where do those innate abilities come from, and mm-hmm. the answer to that question has to be evolution. So, from an interest in the structure of the mind, it's natural to ask the question: where did that structure come from? Um, let me ask you: uh, in in your research, is there a is there a, a particular event, a singularity, if you will, in terms of uh, our transition um, to a point where we had a consciousness about the world around us as homo sapiens? Have you been able to determine in some some manner what where that transition occurred? And I don't even know if I'm talking about a time time particular time, but how it happened. How is it that? Uh, I assume you believe that we developed from the apes, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I'm oh, guessing absolutely. that would be... Okay, I just want to make sure we're on the same page. But what was it, what is it in that, in that period of time when we went from that to where we are currently? Am I, is, that, is this too broad of a question? Or? Well, yeah, there's, I mean, we know from, from the fossil record that uh, some of the transitions, because we've got by now pretty good fossils going back at least four and a half million years. Uh, in fact, there was a recent, discu- recent uh, publication, really, of a, uh, a very extensive analysis of a, a, he- a likely human ancestor, Ardipithecus ramidus, uh, which uh, falls into a line of um, an- ancestral human fossils that show, first of all, we stood upright well before our brains started to balloon in size. So it can't be that we um, were either crawling on the ground or swinging from trees or walking along the tops of trees and then um, just got smart and thought, hey, gee, it would be a really good idea to start walking around on two legs. (laughs) Evolutionarily, it was the other way around. Uh, and uh, no one knows exactly why the sequence went the way it did. Uh, I suspect that by uh, freeing the hands for, from locomotion, um, it allowed us to carry things and uh, wield tools, and it um, set up uh, a, a lifestyle in which tools are worth having, uh, because you, they're not very useful if you've got a if you've got to walk around in your hands all the time. So that, I, think, I think that was a crucial step. I think the fact, it's not a coincidence that we're evolved from, from um, primates, which we know both from anatomical similarities and from genetic similarities. But primates are, I mean, especially great apes are social. Yeah. And uh, as I mentioned, increased sociality was, was one of the things that we, we really went to town on, our ancestors did anyway. They, um, they ate meat, and uh, meat is significant not just because it fuels a hungry brain, uh, and you can't evolve a big brain unless you have the concentrated doses of nutrients that come from, from meat, mm. but also uh, hunting uh, or scavenging requires 
uh, a kind of collective intelligence that just grazing doesn't. I mean, you don't really have to be that smart to outwit a clump of grass or, or, or get the better of a, of a bunch of berries. But, but when it comes to animals that run away, um, their uh, intelligence comes into its own. And in other species, if you have closely related species, one herbivorous, one carnivorous, usually the carnivorous one has a, a bigger brain and is smarter in, uh, if you give the animal the equivalent of an IQ test. I guess what I was asking about is sort of that 2001 moment where they uh, where they see the monolith and they're suddenly, you know, there's a recognition of something beyond yourself. And I, I don't know if that's even possible to determine that. It's just... I've heard I've heard so many different theories, and I I, I uh, I'm I'm a, leery, a little bit leery about even asking you about this one. But yeah. I have I've heard this theory, and it's been bothering that me. There's for, a magic moment when everything changed for us. Well, and yeah, you know, and, and but it had to do, and I, this is kind of I don't know how this is going to sound to you, but it's something that uh, they talked about uh, them ingesting um, uh, food that caused them to have a somewhat of a drug experience. Uh, uh, what experience? A, sort of a drug, sort of oh, eating. Uh-huh. Eat, oh, you mean like a caffeine? Might have, like might caffeine or like eating a mat, a mushroom or something like that. No. That would have no. You don't buy into this because I've heard this theory so often, and I've I've never really not been not, I've been unsure about the the validity of it. That there was somehow that this caused them to be- begin to see something beyond themselves, if you will. But I you don't okay. Well, in terms of our biological evolution, it, it was, there's no magic moment. I mean, okay. We know from the fossil record that human evolution spanned many millions of years, and it had transitional stages, like walking upright before there was a, a large brain, right. using uh, simple chopper tools, uh, which our, our ancestor, likely ancestor Homo habilis did, okay. then Homo erectus for a, a good million years used much more finely uh, chipped and, and uh, formed and quite quite beautiful hand axes. Um, Very good. And then then uh, after that, Homo uh, antecessor had a, a more refined toolkit. Uh, so there wasn't any monolith moment. You can see in the fossil record that the various stages, including increased brain size. I mean, Erectus was bigger than Habilis, and uh, okay. antecessor was bigger than Erectus. So we're talking millions of years okay. here. Okay. Yeah. It's it's not a Stanley Kubrick moment for no, right, definitely there was no Stanley Kubrick moment <laughs> yeah, that right. we can that we can say with pretty with a fair amount of confidence. All right, we're speaking with Stephen Pinker, the cognitive scientist, who will be speaking at UCI this Saturday, December twelfth. And I'm going to shift gears completely uh, right now. Uh, you'd written an article uh, not too long ago where you said we're living in the most peaceful moment uh, for our species. A time on this earth and um, you know every every week we come on we read the news uh, it, it seems like a violent world out there uh, can you talk a little bit why uh, it's not really as violent as we think it is it's we're really moving toward a more peaceful world yes well most uh, you, you can't really get an impression of different historical periods by reading the newspapers because that tells you that there exists violence that violence hasn't gone to zero but it doesn't tell you how much violence there is as a proportion of the world's population, nor does it tell you anything about uh, how you can compare our era to previous eras, because there's always been violence. You see it in the, in the uh, fossil record, we see it in the Bible, we see it in uh, Homer, we see it in Shakespeare, uh, and so on. If you look at quantitative data sets, they show a reduction in violence on a number of timescales. 
Uh, homicide, for example, just one-on-one murder has been in decline since the Middle Ages, and it was mm. probably between 10 and 50 times uh, more common in uh, medieval England than it is today. Um, since the end of the Second World War, wars between developed states have pretty much vanished, and, and even wars between countries have gone way down. There's still civil wars, as there always have been, but uh, the, the idea of France and Germany going to war, which they did many, many times in their history, uh, has, at least for the time being, seems to be a thing of the past. Uh, and there are a number of other measures that have shown that uh, the, that we've gotten more humane. We've eliminated uh, legal slavery. We've eliminated um, uh, sadistic forms of capital punishment. In fact, we hardly ever execute anyone anymore for any reason. I mean, the United States still has capital punishment on the books, unlike most European countries. But even in this country, we, we don't do it very much as a proportion of the number of murders. So people have lost a lot of their, at least in, certainly in the developed West and to a lesser extent in other parts of the world, have, have lost uh, their taste for violence in a way that, uh, that they was demonstrated for millions of years, or thousands of years, I should say. Now, do you think we've replaced that taste for violence viscerally with a taste for violence uh, just visually? You mean the spectacle? It, is, yeah. That, is that why we're so fascinated with it on, you know, it seems like on television and in print, in media in general? Do you think that's why media plays it up? Yeah, certainly. Uh, um, yeah, there's the saying, if it bleeds, it leads. Mm-hmm. That is, the, the news media have a definite bias for violent events, because that's what their viewers like to look at. And in fact, if there aren't violent events in the world, we make them up in our our movies and plays and and books and and stories. And that's not a new thing. uh, Shakespeare was much more violent than contemporary entertainment, as was the Old Testament. And uh, Homer and uh, you know, Gilgamesh and the Bayou Tapestry and all the great classics of history have been uh, horrifically violent. So, so you'd say even our, uh, our, our literature and our entertainments are becoming less violent than they were hundreds of years ago? Well, I don't know if they're becoming... They, they might be. They're certainly no more violent. Mm-hmm. If you, uh, certainly if you look over uh, forms of uh, both elite entertainment and mass entertainment, there's a lot of gore and bloodshed. Uh, in, in history, so I don't know if there's any less. There's less violence in real life. I mean, you can go to the cinema, you know, cinemaplex, and see this, you know, blood and gore and guts all over the screen. And uh, then at the end, you see, in the credits, it says no animals were harmed in the making. Yeah, yeah that's so, true. <laughs> it's. I would say that films have become more sophisticated in their depiction of violence than than ever yeah. before. I don't know if that the violent behavior is any worse than than it has been in that ter- in the, that regard. We're speaking with Steven Pinker. Uh, the, the book is How the Mind Works. Uh, Stephen Pinker will be speaking at the uh, Beckman Center this Saturday, uh, December 12th, uh, um, on the evolution of the mind as part of the National Academy of Science Conference. Uh, I wanted to, to also talk a little bit about education and your, and your uh, views and your ideas about how we can change uh, the way we teach our, our, our students and our children. Are the universities doing a good job now? Uh, hard to say because there are 3,000 universities, so <laughs> there are differences. What I can say is that the, uh, the, the elite expensive universities, the kind that, that I've been teaching in, like Harvard and MIT, mm-hmm. um, are, care a lot more about education than, than they did um, uh, 15, 20 years ago. It used to be that a 
professor, the job of a professor was uh, at a fancy university was to do research, and, and the undergraduate students were kind of a nuisance. Uh, and um, universities have very much changed that. Uh, I was asked to take over the large, one of the largest court lecture courses at MIT, the introductory psychology course, about 15 years ago, at a time when it was often kind of outsourced or subcontracted to um, postdoctoral fellows or students or people who weren't in the, in the research, on the research ladder. But uh, the MIT administration, like, like I think many universities, has been trying to get its brand name faculty uh, out there in front of the students. No, and not just lecturing, but also in the uh, dining halls, meeting one-on-one -on -one in offices. I think we've come to the realization, you know, these guys are paying our salaries. Uh, it really won't do to treat them like they're distractions from our, from our job. They are our job. And for me, uh, you know, it's not only pressure from uh, above, but it's something that I very much uh, enjoy, partly because it's only when you explain what you know to someone else that you really understand it. You can mm -hmm. often think you understand it. Then you try to put it in your own words, and you start to get flustered, and you realize, gee, what I'm saying doesn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> I better go back and, uh, and really you know, understand it myself. Uh, and so I find it uh, a valuable intellectual experience uh, for myself as well as uh, a service to the students. Well, I was, I was at, uh, my point in the question was you uh, come up with a, an article you wrote a, f a few years ago about teaching content as, a, as opposed to being focused on a discipline within the, within the school system as a better way to educate, bringing all of the sort of, in your, I would put it in your terms, sort of a unified theory uh, of, of teaching as opposed to just a certain discipline. Yes, I, I, mean, I do think that teaching should not pay attention to the bureaucratic divisions that make life easy for administrators, like a department of psychology and a department of linguistics and a department of brain science and philosophy. They're all connected. And the, the more we get uh, a focus on the actual content or subject matter and the less on these academic um, uh, inventions, the better. So, for example, if I'm teaching consciousness, it's not just psychology that studies it, but also philosophy and also brain science. Likewise, if I'm, if I'm teaching language, psychologists study it, but so do linguists and so do computer scientists who try to get computers to talk and to understand. And if I'm supposed to be teaching language, I should not care about what the university department teaches it. I should care about the, the, the subject matter, the phenomenon. And, and I do think that disciplines are, have become nuisances in understanding things. I'm going to ask you one more question before we let you go. Given, given all you know, given all you've studied, do you feel uh, good about uh, man's future here? <laughs> do you... um, well, it's, uh, I, I guess I don't feel totally hopeless. Uh, the, the, the reason that I'm hedging, even though I've been emphasizing how the world has gotten less violent on average, is that there are still extremes that you have to worry about. There are rare, uh, hard-to-predict, but disastrous uh, events that could occur. Mm. So we can't really relax as long as there are uh, loose nukes, uh, at least the possibility of loose nukes, the possibility of um, theocratic dictators with nuclear weapons. That, that keeps me up at night. Mm. Um, but on average, on the other hand, when I was growing up, you know, I was in duck and cover exercises where I had to worry about the yeah. USSR and the U.S. going to war and the end of life as we know it. That's not going to happen. 
So even though there are lots of things to worry about, uh, it used to be worse. So, so you hedging your bets right now? Is I, oh, yeah. Any, I think any, any prudent person would have to. All righty. Uh, well, Stephen Pinker, thanks so much for talking with us today. We look forward to your visit here this Saturday, December 12th. Uh, again, thank you, and uh, good luck in all you do. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thank To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.